Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland, senior writer for HowStuffWorks.com. And today in the studio, I am not by myself. It is so amazingly awesome. Not only am I not by myself, I didn't even have to pick the topic. My guest did it for me. And my guest, of course, is someone you all know and love, Joe McCormick, beloved in our office. We sing his praises when he's not around. Joe, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. You're welcome, Joe. It's like a little, it's like a two-thirds forward-thinking reunion right now. So I wanted to talk today a little bit about a subject that is recently near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Not a long-time fascination, a, a, a recent obsession. Yeah. And that is the idea of radio direction finding. Yeah, this was something I knew. I mean, really, I knew nothing about it when you brought this to my attention. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized not only is it a fascinating subject, but it also in many ways is kind of a spiritual cousin to some other topics I've covered, like geocaching, uh, just for one specific part of radio direction finding that we'll get into in this episode. Okay, so... Uh, to introduce you yeah. here, I want you to imagine 
you have a favorite radio station. Power Maybe 99. You don't have to imagine. You really do. <laughs> what do they play on Power 99? Well, they don't play anything anymore because now it's 99X. But, uh, but back in the uh, 90s, Power 99 was the station that slowly introduced Atlanta to the wonderful world of alternative music. Okay. So R.E.M. got a lot of play. In fact, the very first time I ever heard R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion was on Power 99. Nice. Yeah. Do you listen now to 97.1 The River? Uh, you know what? Not a big <laughs> not a big fan of The River, but I do still listen to 99X, which is not on 99.7 anymore. I can't remember which station it's on, but I still listen to that. Okay. Well, take yourself back in time, Jonathan. Okay. Go back to the days of Power 99. Will do. And imagine, you know, Power 99, it just gets you through the morning. Yeah. You wake up every day, you know, uh, it, it gets you through the tedium of peeling those 37 hard-boiled eggs you're going to eat for breakfast. Uh, yeah. And this is accurate so far. And it, it just it's your favorite part of the day. Mm-hmm. But one morning, you switch on your radio to Power 99. You think you're going to hear some great new REM singles. But instead, something is wrong. Instead of the regular programming of mm-hmm. your uh, of your regular favorite radio station, you are treated to an unending loop of Mick Jagger's 1985 solo love ballad, Hard Woman. Is this the one that has the terrible music video? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, pu- put together by a Cray supercomputer. Yeah. yeah. No, I remember this. I remember you showing me that music video. And, and the only thing worse than the music video was, in fact, the song itself. Uh, it's... It's hard to know which is worse, but yeah. So it's looping. In fact, they don't even let the song finish each time it plays. The loop begins about 10 to 15 seconds before the song's over. So it's just maddening. Yeah. Uh, so you call up the station. You call up Power 99 and say, hey, what's up with Hard Woman all the time? Where's my REM? And they say, I don't know what you're talking about. We're running our regular programming. Somebody is jamming you. So what they're doing is they're using a transmitter, presumably one much closer to you than the radio station's transmitter, and at a power that overpowers the incoming signal for that radio station. Right, because they're closer to you than the radio station is, they can do this. Because the only other way they could do that is if they were actually putting in more power in their transmitter than the radio station is, which is not likely. But somebody in your neighborhood, somebody near your house with a with a vendetta against REM. Yeah. Or maybe just an uh, unending, powerful, overflowing love for Mick Jagger's Hard Woman. Or some sort of curmudgeon in between. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is is broadcasting this malicious interference on mm. the same frequency as your beloved station. Now, obviously, this is intolerable. Uh, but the station themselves, well, they probably can't do anything about it. Sure. So you contact the FCC, right? This should be their job to deal with. Yeah, it. here You're... in the U.S., that's exactly who I would. I've got them on speed dial. Yeah, right. Yeah. Signal intrusion, right? You're oh, supposed sure. to regulate the airwaves. So you call up the FCC, but eh, they tell you to take a hike. They're busy undoing net neutrality. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you going to do? Are you just going to allow? This radio freak to jagger up your mornings for the rest of your life. That doesn't sound like me, Joe. Uh, if you're, if that's not your style. Yeah. One thing you could do is try to take matters into your own hands. Now, how would you do that? You would have to track down the jagger jammer yourself and give this creep a piece of your mind. But how could you do that? Like the song loop doesn't say, Hey, by the way, here's the address of my secret jamming transmitter. Right. At so... least not explicitly. So then I'd have to figure out some way independent of the content of the signal mm-hmm. 
to track the location of the transmitter. Yeah, and that's what today's episode is going to be about. Uh, if you know a few techniques, and if you have some special equipment on hand, you actually should be able to locate this jammer through the art of radio direction finding, or RDF, as mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll uh, refer to it throughout this episode. It's the act of hunting a radio broadcast to its physical source. Um, so today we're going to talk a little bit about RDF in general, a little bit about the history, about the science behind it. Uh, but we also wanted to focus somewhat on the sport of transmitter hunting, also known as tea hunting or fox hunting, mm-hmm. which turns this activity of radio direction finding into a recreational activity. And this this ties into a lot of those other subjects I was talking about, like from the aspect of geocaching where we're using technology for some sort of recreational activity mm-hmm. that it ne- wasn't necessarily intended to be when we first uh, started developing that tech, all the way to the story Chuck and I did about the infamous Max Headroom incident, mm-hmm. right, where somebody Another was, case of signal intrusion. Exactly. Someone was able to, to do signal intrusion in, in the Chicago market and uh, overpower television signals and present a, a an absurd, slightly disturbing, and very surreal Max Headroom type of uh, intrusion. Well, those those things, I mean, that's, that's kind of why we're talking about this, is like, how would you detect where such an intrusion is coming from if you had enough time to do so? In the case of the Max Headroom incident... It was over before you... Yeah. yeah. By the time anyone knew what was happening, it was too late to, to really figure out where's the signal coming from. Mm-hmm. They had general ideas just based upon the uh, architecture of the city because things like buildings and stuff can get in the way of radio signals. So that, that limits where a, an, a signal can come from. Mm-hmm. But... You need something more sophisticated in order to narrow down the actual direction and uh, specifically the locality of a transmitter. So this has a really long history. It dates back pretty much shortly after we started sending radio signals. Uh, In fact, the very first person to kind of associate directionality with radio signals was uh, Heinrich Hertz. And that name Hertz probably rings some bells. We're going to be talking about a lot about Hertz, the uh, unit of measurement, mm-hmm. <laughs> not Hertz, the person in this episode. He discovered in 1888 with an open loop of wire, which was acting like an antenna or it really was an antenna, wasn't mm-hmm. acting like one. Just a bent one. Yeah. <laughs> but this was a loop of wire that had a gap uh, between the two ends of the loop. So it's not a closed loop. It's an open loop. Uh, it had some direction-finding properties to it. He found that if he used this loop near a transmitter, and if the loop were positioned so that its ends faced the transmitter, in other words, if you're looking at the face of a transmitter and you're looking at a loop, the loop is at a 90-degree angle. It's it's The wire part is facing, um, the, the ends of the wire part is facing the transmitter as opposed to the open face. Okay. Uh, it would create a real, a big spark between those two ends. Hmm. If he started to rotate the loop of wire so that the open face, the O, if you will, of the loop faced the transmitter, it didn't create that spark. So rotating it would create sparks, and the biggest spark would be if it was in this 90-degree uh, alignment with the transmitter. And that showed that there was some directionality with radio waves and antenna. Yeah, and that... It- 
that specifically you could put together an antenna or receiver in certain ways that it would respond differently depending on how it's oriented. Exactly. With respect to the, the source of transmission. Exactly. Yeah. So the next one you would talk about, the actual one of the earliest successful uh, uh, implementations of this idea would be the Bellini-Tosi apparatus. Uh, not the only early direction-finding antenna. Why but, am I imagining some kind of dessert-making machine? Yeah, the Bellini-Tosi apparatus. It's, and, like a, it's like a large box out of which comes big blobs of icing. Right, or gelato or something. Uh, God, I'm on a diet, dude. You are killing me Runs right on now. diesel. <laughs> I would eat diesel-powered gelato at, right now in a heartbeat. Uh-huh. But instead, I'm going to stick to my Brussels sprouts. Uh, so two Italian officers named Ettore Bellini and Alessandro Tosi uh, came up with this. Sometimes it's actually called the Marconi Bellini Tosi because Marconi's name gets attached to everything. Yeah. Uh, that might be a little bitter Tesla <laughs> leftover uh, issues that I have about Marconi's name getting associated with stuff that certainly he was instrumental in the development of, but perhaps not the primary source of that technology the way his name would indicate. Oh, anyway. yeah, the wireless telegraph. You'd want his name all over everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. D- don't worry about people who worked on that stuff, you know, before him or or had originally secured a patent before he had and then had their patents overturned. Oh, stop with your bitterness. That's another episode. In fact, I've talked about it in previous episodes. So the way this worked is that they actually created uh, two loops of wire arranged at right angles with respect to one another. So you can think Mm -hmm. of these as kind of like a casing, these two big loops of wire at right angles, in the middle of which they put a third coil of wire, but this one could rotate freely within those two fixed 90-degree angle loops. Okay. So So it's like a wire globe and then another loop inside. Yeah, and that wire loop inside can freely rotate, and that's where they were able to create this directional antenna, this direction-finding antenna. They, uh, the, the rotating element is called a rotor or a sense coil, and then the other two are called stators or field coils. And, folks, I apologize. I'm still over getting over a cold, so you're going to hear me be raspy throughout this episode, just like last time. Yay. <laughs> so these uh, original ones were big, big devices. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the first picture I saw, it showed the operator sitting at a desk, and the actual antenna was about twice the height of the desk he was sitting at. Now, what was this used for at the time? These were used as land stations uh, around primarily Europe and were used mainly to help with navigation. So mm, so how would that work? You would have this enormous uh, uh, antenna that was detecting transmissions coming from other uh, vessels, mm. let's say Navy vessels or, or maritime vessels, and they would be able to detect what direction the uh, the that transmission's coming from and send information back out via radio oh, okay. to the vessel. So the lost ship says, where am I? And sends yeah. a transmission saying, where am I? Yeah, this land-based you're station. You're to our southwest. Yeah. It knows where it is. Yes. And if it knows the direction your transmission is coming from, then it can tell you where you are. In general, yes. And then eventually you actually saw these devices being placed on the craft themselves. Yeah. So then you could have a stationary uh, radio transmission center sending mm-hmm. out a basic signal sometimes and frequently uh, having the the location for that that uh, transmission center encoded in the signal itself sent out to sea and then the uh, the 
the vessels would have these type of antenna aboard them. They could then use the antenna to figure out what direction the transmission's coming from because they know the specific location of that center because it's in the signal itself. So the same thing, but inverse. Exactly. So early ones were land-based, then later on they were actually based on the vehicles uh, themselves. Whether it was, it started off with ships. It eventually also incorporated aircraft. Now, I know that the idea of... Finding the physical location of a radio transmitter, whether it's a vehicle or a station of some kind, must have played a big role once uh, radio was used in warfare. Absolutely. Uh, There were some instrumental battles in which uh, uh, one side or the other, frequently actually it was the Allies, had determined that uh, a certain German group of units, typically U-boats, was really effective in naval warfare. Is this in World War One? World War II, two, actually. Oh, okay. World War One, there was some, but World War Two, it, it really came into play. World War One, certainly the U-boat uh, communications, which were using very low frequency radio waves, uh, it was very important. By the t- World War Two, you're talking about more high frequency and um, radio waves being put into use. Uh-huh. Uh, that's where we get the huff duff. Because it's high-frequency direction finder antennas, HFDFs, or Huffduff was the nickname. You get the Huffduff antennas uh, that would indicate the direction of a transmission, and that would help uh, be able to track like enemy movements, enemy troop movements, particularly in the in in the navy. And it. Uh, but can you imagine how disappointed these antennas are when they get sorted into Huffleduff? Yeah, now right, like you know, they all want to be Slytherin because that's my house. I don't know what house you belong to. Uh, I, I That's not for me to say. You've never been sorted? No. I got sorted into Slytherin. I mean, I'm just saying. I didn't try to. It just happened. Um, so you just put on the hat. I do what the hat tells me, man. Uh-huh. I live my life <laughs> that way. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. 
I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. So this type of antenna was originally meant not for military purposes. It was actually meant to help uh, meteorologists learn more about lightning. Hmm. It was developed by Robert Watson Watt back in 1926, and it was to help locate where a lightning strike occurs. Because, you know, lightning, it it gives off electromagnetic rays just, or waves, I should say, Uh not rays, but waves just as uh, a radio antenna would. Sure. And so you would use these antenna to detect the location of lightning strikes. It also helped you track the pathway of electrical storms. So that's what it was intended for. But in World War II, it got put to other uses to try and track movements of enemy troops. Uh, Very important. Now, uh, after World War II, we started seeing more development in radio direction finding technology, not just in military, but also commercial applications. Uh, in fact, we also saw a lot of amateur radio operators get interested in it. And yeah. uh, particularly once ham radio in the United States was really starting to take off. I guess that was in the 50s, sort of. Yeah, 40s and 50s, really. Really post-World War II, because yeah. during World War II, they were very, very picky about who got a chance to actually uh, broadcast radio. Right. <laughs> yeah, they were like, uh, you know, guys, uh, we need you guys to, to, unless we're telling you to do it, don't do that thing, Right. So, uh, but once World War II was over, we saw a lot more development go into that. And there are a lot of, uh, a lot of purposes for RDF. We talked about navigation. It's not really used for navigation that much anymore because we have more sophisticated methods for navigation. Uh, we've lots, got satellites now. Yeah. We've got, we've got stuff beyond like a, a, a radio transmitter and a, and a receiver. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, there's still some places that use uh, radio beacons as a means for emergency backup. Uh, some around the UK, not really any in the United States at this point. Um, maritime vehicles held onto it longer than aircraft did, but uh, even today, you don't really see that as a uh, as a even a, a tertiary method for navigation because we have so many other more sophisticated systems at play. Uh, but there are other reasons that we do still use them. I mean, well, one would be like the example hunting down illicit broadcasts and jammers. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Now, this was huge in World War Two as well. The UK actually uh, ended up getting a big volunteer force of interceptors, about 1700 folks in the UK who were amateur radio operators. 
and use them to help suss out any uh, enemy transmissions that were coming from the UK. Because is, is there a period piece movie about this yet? There should be, uh, although it'd be kind of boring because I think they only they ever didn't found, find anything. They found, like, <laughs> they found like two, and one of them was one that they were doing on purpose. <laughs> well, that could be the angle. Maybe maybe there was a cover up. There's yeah. some big secret, or or like like there's the 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 crowd of ham operators carrying pitchforks uh, uh-huh. storming the transmitter room of this one perceived enemy of the state and it turns out that they're just following orders from the UK government to send out false uh, uh, commands because that was a thing right like it wasn't just secret information it was disinformation there were a mm-hmm. lot of different campaigns going on in the information and intelligence worlds in World War II so, but that's glorious—the image of uh, an army of hams, yeah, radio hams coming at you to 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 VHF you up. Yep, that's right. There's there's so much opportunity there for uh, edge of your seat drama. Uh-huh. But uh, the the interesting thing to me was that the UK they they were using MI5 to mm-hmm. head this operation because that's their domestic intelligence agency. But they determined that really this was a bigger problem in Europe. They had a lot more uh, clandestine operators in Europe on both sides, really, sending out messages via radio transmission. And so they switched this operation over to MI6, which looked at uh, intelligence coming from outside the UK rather than from within it. So it's kind of in the United States, the difference between our FBI and our CIA. Mm -hmm. Same sort of thing. And uh, in Europe was a much different story. Like the RDF was incredibly important during World War II because there were so many different operators using uh, radio transmission as a way of getting uh, either spy reports or orders across various borders. It eventually got to the point, actually, where the uh, Axis powers were um, really shy about transmitting any information because they were so worried about it getting intercepted and caught. Mm. And this is the same era as the Enigma machine, right? And once the uh, the allies were able to crack some of the Enigma codes, it it was a it really became apparent that you had to be super careful with uh, your intelligence. Otherwise, you were handing the the enemy all of your game plans. So, uh, it's a really interesting story though. Um then there's other methods or other reasons to use RDF. There's search and rescue. Yeah, how about that? So uh, Coast Guard or rescuing yep. a downed plane, yep. either one. You might have a vehicle that is equipped with radio transmission capability but yep. is itself stranded. Yeah, there's a lot of civil aircraft that have this. There are a lot of – like if you are um, – if you're hiking in an area that is uh, – prone for to avalanches you may even have a transmitter on you mm-hmm. as a, a means for emergency signaling in the case of an avalanche uh, so this is still a thing right it's it's something that uh, can send out a steady signal with perhaps an encoded message uh, usually a unique identifier to whatever the transmitter is so that once you tune into it, you know that you're actually listening for the right signal. You're not going to get distracted by a signal on a similar frequency that is not what you're looking for. And you can try and narrow down your search to find whatever it is that's lost. Now, one thing we mentioned earlier is hunting malicious interference. People yep. who are intentionally jamming a radio station or broadcasting propaganda or something like that. But yep. there's also unintentional interference. And this could be useful, too, for tracking down, you know, uh, 
something maybe uh radio frequencies are leaking out of some sort of device and sure. they're interfering with uh with the broadcast band around there. Yeah. I mean it's uh it, it's not necessarily something that's done with malicious intent. Really anything that creates an electrical field is creating electromagnetic radiation and mm-hmm. that some form of that is in radio waves and depending upon the power of the the device in question it could be putting out radio waves strong enough to interfere with the transmission of normal signals. You'll hear about this also, like, I remember hearing about this with um, uh, theaters, in fact, theaters that were using wireless radios in order to have back of house uh, talk to front of house uh-huh. for stuff like like uh, stage managing and lighting changes and stuff. And then you would end up getting truckers talking over your system. <laughs> and it would just, Peter Pan became an entirely different show at that point. Like, right. But uh, but this is the sort of Morning thing. Morning Tinkerbell about the speed trap up there. Yeah, and it, it all has to do with with the frequency you're using and the power of the radios in question, right? Or perhaps more problematically, having that transmission of a high school production of Peter Pan being transmitted out to people who are using radio for really important reasons. Right. Uh, this this is one of the reasons why most places around the world have very strict rules of what types of equipment can use which frequency bands uh-huh. so that it avoids that kind of so crossed contamination. You don't have the problem where uh, Officer officer Hertz tries to radio in for backup, but instead he's being jammed by Peter Pan. Right. Or suddenly Captain Hook and a bunch of pirates show up and like, this is not the backup I was hoping for. Uh-huh. Uh, I wasn't hoping for a chorus line. I really need physical people to help back me up for this dangerous situation. Uh, uh, another yeah. use that you have here that I didn't even think of, but very smart, wildlife tracking. Yeah. Yeah. Animals like that get, get tagged. Exactly. They're, these are transmitters that send out a, a steady signal so that scientists can continue to monitor the movement of various wildlife. Usually you do this to track migration patterns and how those might change, particularly in light of things like uh, human uh, inter- like humans moving into what used to be uh, territory for animals. Mm-hmm. How do their migration patterns change? Or in the face of changing weather patterns, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you need, obviously, to have a direction finder in order to know where the animals are actually going. Plus, if you ever want to go and do a physical check, let's say that you are doing like a, uh, you're drawing blood from a specific animal every few months, then you need to be able to track where that animal is and and narrow down its range so that you can actually get to it and do that. So that is another use. And of course, we've already kind of talked about it, but spies. Spies. I mean, not not just not just uh, someone trying to transmit something uh sometimes it's like uh trying to find a bug like bugs that have been planted in places they're they're sending out little radio transmission typically uh i mean you could have one that's just recording natively to a device but that means you have to go back into that place mm-hmm. and retrieve the device in order to hear what's been recorded on it most bugs are transmitters so that means that you have to have a radio direction finder to figure out uh where a transmission is coming from. Let's say it's a nice big embassy building. You might need to narrow down exactly where is this thing. Um, and that, you know, we see those in spy movies, but it really does happen. Uh, yeah. The spy museum in Washington, D.C., fascinating. You can actually see some of the devices that were used to both uh, plant bugs and to detect them. I want to go to that sometime. I, I've read a little bit about, uh, I remember seeing online a thing about their exhibit on spy pigeons. Yeah. 
It's fun. It's it's weird in that I don't mean this to become like an ad for the spy museum in D.C. It's weird because I feel like the presentation is really perfectly geared towards kids. But there's so much text involved in in the the exhibits that I don't know that your average kid has the the attention span or desire to read that much while going through a museum. So my experience was that I was trying to read the same paragraph 15 times while kids were running all over the place trying to play with stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was a little frustrating for me, but fascinating exhibits, really well laid out and lots of fun stuff. They they incorporate both real-world spy <laughs> gadgets and also movie stuff. So they had like an entire James Bond section that was really a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. And then one other modern use for radio direction finding is what we're really going to focus on toward the end of this show, which is using it recreationally for sport. So this idea of fox hunting, trying to, you know, competitively trying to track. You mean the sport itself, not like using radio direction finding to find a lost ball in golf. I mean, there's no reason you couldn't do that other than the fact that you would have to have a golf ball with a transmitter and have to build it in such a way that it could withstand enormous force being placed upon the ball and still not, you know, still continue to transmit. Probably would affect the flight of the ball. Yeah, what are the other caveats? Come on. Yeah, no, I'm thinking about all the different – this is the thing. You're going to – put out a joking hypothetical and I'm going to go through why it's going to be difficult to implement. Well, Not impossible, but difficult. Maybe we should stop you there and take a break. Yeah, let's do that. Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. All right, we're back. Now, before we dive into the wonderful world of fox hunting, uh, it, it would probably behoove us to understand a little bit more about radio waves, how they work, uh, transmitters and antenna, in order to, to get at what transmitter hunting is all about. So we're going to start at basic, like elementary level radio physics. Okay. okay. And we're going to build from there. So radio waves are a subset of electromagnetic waves. Those are also called EM waves or M waves. You have to put your finger up to your chin like you're thinking M waves. Yeah. Um, now EM waves come from stuff that generates an electric field. Uh, it doesn't have to be a particularly sophisticated setup. You can actually do this with something as simple as a 9-volt battery and a coin. If really? You, yeah. If you put a coin across the, the terminals of a 9-volt battery, you are generating an electric field. Because all you're doing is closing the circuit right. from the, the negative and positive terminals and allowing electricity to flow through. That creates an electric field. Right. But I'm assuming you're saying this because doing that would generate some kind of radio signal that can be detected. Yes. It's a very weak radio signal. But if you were to do this very close to an AM radio, first you would you would want to tune the AM radio to... Uh, something that's just static. You're not actually getting a, a, a signal, like a strong signal in. Uh-huh. And if you were to place the coin against the terminals and listen closely to the radio, you should hear a crackle as the coin makes contact with those terminals because you're sending out this little radio signal and the radio is detecting it. Now, you're not sending out anything meaningful. You're just It's just noise. That's why you're just getting a crackle. Mm. You could send a signal in Morse code, so you could encode a signal by the sound and absence of sound of this crackle, but there's nothing meaningful in the crackle itself, right? But that does show you that it doesn't take very much for you to generate radio waves. Uh, the, the electromagnetic waves that we talk about all have kind of common features, even though they may do very different things. There's certain things that we can use to describe them that's common across all of them. So when we plot those waves on a graph, you know, it's a little up and down, the the crests and troughs that you would see, usually across an X and Y axis. Mm -hmm. Uh, We would call the height of those waves the amplitude. Uh, This typically, like in sound waves, this would be the volume of sound, right? The, The higher the amplitude, the louder the sound is. The length of the wave is the wavelength. Okay. That's really... Kind of tricky, right? Um, and the number of waves that pass through any given point on that graph within a second, that's the frequency. But because these waves always move at the same speed, which is the speed of light. Yes. If you know one or if you know the wavelength or the frequency, you know the other. Exactly. Because you know how fast it's going. Right, right. So when we talk about different frequencies, we're not talking about speed of the 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 signal because the signal's still traveling at the speed of light no matter what. We're talking about the number of times a wave passes any given point within a second. Typically it's within a second. It's really any unit of time, but 
for the purposes of measurement, we talk about hertz, and a hertz talks about the number of uh, times a wave passes a point in a second. So one hertz would be once a second. That would need to be an extremely long wave because for it to take a full second for the wave to pass that point uh, and it's the traveling at the of speed light. of light, that's incredibly long, right? So, so how far does light go in a second? Let's see. Uh, I don't know. Like further than I've ever been. I can tell you that. <laughs> okay, well, so how how do you get to using radio though? Because we so yes, we live in a universe of radio sure. signals. There yeah. there are electromagnetic waves all over the place around us. But that's hu- humans use radio for specific purposes. They can take these waves and encode information with them. Yeah, and this this comes from manipulating either the amplitude or the frequency of those waves, modulating them in some way, typically. That's how we can encode information into them. So uh, let's say that you build a circuit containing a capacitor and an inductor. These are two very basic circuit components. So you build your circuit, you've got a capacitor and an inductor involved in this. This will allow you to create a sine wave. That's just a very smooth, continuously varying wave. It's, you know, that kind of smooth up and down, like like your typical, let's uh, show uh, uh, ocean waves kind of viewpoint. And, and just nice little hills and valleys. The little this, saltwater crocodile yeah. going along in there. And the saltwater crocodile would be carrying information. So without any <laughs> saltwater crocodiles... You're still not you're still not transmitting anything meaningful, right? It's just a sine wave, but yeah. there's no information there. But if you modulate it, then you can encode information in it. One way to do that is with pulse modification. This is similar to what I was talking about with that 9-volt battery. This just involves turning a signal on and off so that when the signal's on, it might indicate a dot or dash in Morse code. So you're not... Again, nothing within the signal itself is necessarily meaningful. It's when you detect it versus when you don't detect it that gives you information. Mm-hmm. B- then you have uh, amplitude modification or uh, modulation, I should say, or AM. That changes the peak-to-peak voltage of the sine wave. Um, and the way you do this with AM radio is you start with a basic sine wave. That's your That's your baseline. You take whatever you want to transmit, whether it's, you know, the cool hits of the 70s or some talk show hosts or whatever. You take that. that Hard woman. Yeah, it could be hard woman. You take that signal and you overlay that signal on top of the baseline sine wave to modulate it. This Mm -hmm. changes the amplitude of that sine wave. You get kind of a, a. you know, a product from the modulation of these two, like by adding the two together, you get a new frequency, a new wave. It's not really, it's the same frequency, it's different amplitude. But you get a new wave with a different amplitude than both of your basic ones. This is what you transmit to a a, a radio tower. You actually have to amplify it by quite a lot, obviously. The further you want this signal to go, the more you have to amplify it, the larger your antenna tends to be. Mm -hmm. And then the signal goes out over the air, and then people with receivers tuned to that frequency can pick it up, and the signal gets converted uh, back into something that a radio can play, uh, amplified again so that you can hear Hard Woman. Uh, frequency, frequency modulation is similar, except instead of changing the amplitude, like modulating the amplitude, you're modulating the frequency of the signal. So you, again, you start with a base sine wave for the radio station. This is what's transmitting whether any noise is coming out of it or not. It's just this base sine wave. 
then you take on the the uh, the wave created from whatever you're trying to transmit, hard woman, and it changes the frequency. Now, Jonathan, I wonder how exactly if if you're not a, a radio expert, um, how does modulating the frequency not affect the uh, you know the station you're listening to? Because the station you listen to the radio on is right. the frequency. Sure. It's, when there's a number in front of a radio station, mm-hmm. power ninety nine. That's 99 megahertz, right? Right. 99.7, yeah. Well, part of it is that each radio station really has a range. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's – it's you get a number, that's the base frequency. But there's a range within or, or surrounding that frequency that uh, allows for this modulation. The modulation doesn't change the frequency so dramatically that it will bleed into another station. That's mm-hmm. why we have stations that have very defined um, – uh, uh, frequencies, because if you didn't have that, if they were too close together, they would bleed over occasionally. You might have actually experienced this if you're listening particularly to AM radio because it travels much further. If you start traveling around, uh, you might get two stations coming in simultaneously because you might you might move from the broadcast area of one station into the broadcast range of a station that's got a similar, though not necessarily identical, frequency, mm-hmm. and then you're hearing both at the same time. That's really uh, disconcerting. Um, if you once or you transcendent, get, it could be like you, if you're if you're hearing REM and Hard Woman, you might discover something interesting about yourself. I don't or know. Fr- fire and Brimstone sermon, and uh, I don't know some some good something about college sports. Yeah, here in the southeast, would be college sports and and sermons. Yeah, but from my experience of listening to AM radio, um, so. Receiving antenna, what they do, like we just talked about you, you take your transmitter, you send a signal out, it it gets amplified a couple of times usually before it hits the broadcast antenna and sends out over the the airwaves. A receiver does the same sort of thing, but it does this in reverse. So antennas are tuned to specific uh, electromagnetic frequencies. Yeah, usually they have elements that are a certain size specified. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so what will happen is uh, they they resonate with a certain range of frequencies. And if those frequencies are present, like if the antenna is present in the in the within those frequencies, then it can send it. This get this creates an electrical current that it can then uh, amplify and convert into sound so that we can hear it on our radios. Um, the you know the purpose of the amplifier is just really to boost that signal. Mm hmm typically using like something along the lines of a transformer to do that. Uh, and I've talked about that in the past. So that means you can get your talk radio or your greatest hits of the Ramones, which lasts 12 minutes. Not because they're so few, <laughs> but because Ramones songs are so short. Guys, we had a lot more to talk about when it comes to transmitter hunting. This is always the case. Joe and I will end up having a conversation and we think at the beginning it's going to take maybe 40 minutes. And at the end, it takes longer than an hour and a half. That's what happened this time. So we're splitting this episode up. That means next week you get to hear part two about transmitter hunting, where we really focus on the core aspects of the sport. So join us next week for the exciting conclusion. Remember, you can listen to Joe on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and you can see a lot of his work at HowStuffWorks.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, maybe you've got a suggestion for an episode topic or someone I should have on the show, you can always write me. The email address is techstuff 
at HowStuffWorks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.